Open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to First, first uh, Kings. Uh, now, if you're new to the Scriptures, we do also have it printed out in our uh, in those sort of handouts. And if you don't have one of those handouts, uh, Hugo and Deborah are, ho- are hoarding them, so you can definitely ask them, and they'll give you one. You know, we approached a 66-verse chapter last week, and we didn't really get very far, did we? Uh, in the simplest sense, we basically got to about verse 28 or 29. And uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer, set our scene up. And we have this amazing text about Solomon. And in my opinion, the greatest day the guy has ever had recorded in Scripture. I mean, he has a lot of big mistakes that are recorded. You know, there's a part of me that, that thinks, God, if I do something great, wouldn't it be, be cool if it was recorded in Scripture? But then to be honest... Then you realize, wow, but then you also seem to record the big failures. Maybe, maybe not. So go to the Lord and pray with me, would you please? Lord, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to worship you today in your word. We want to praise you that we can turn to you at a time like this and expect you to speak. We thank you that... that here in this room you meet us. Father, you tell us that you dwell upon the praises of your people. We recognize you're here. Jesus, you promise that when two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. So you're here. Holy Spirit, we recognize you're here because you dwell within believers. So here in this room, the entire Trinity dwelling. Wow. And we get to sit here and to seek your face. And we want to be changed and challenged and encouraged and equipped for every good work. And so that's our heart's desire tonight. Move powerfully, perfectly, profoundly today in each of us. You know what we could understand and what we can't. You know what things make sense to us culturally and what things your Holy Spirit just has to reveal to us. Because we wouldn't get it otherwise. But tonight... May we have so much fun in your scriptures. And may this be an amazing time. Bless every second, I pray. Jesus, bring people to you. Me too. And if there be anyone who has yet to know you, let tonight be the night they know they have a choice to make. And tonight they could say yes to the greatest gift of eternity. So... Do your work now, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Solomon is, uh, has built the temple building, but it really is just a box until God's presence comes and fills it. Until that time, it's an impressive building, but even though it's an impressive building, it's still a building nonetheless. And without the presence of God, it's just another cool building. We're really now roughly about 966 BC to give us a mindset. In other words, we're roughly about a millennia ago. Well, actually, that's not right. We're roughly about three millennia ago. And in those 3,000 years, a lot has changed, but this standard still applies. We've seen a lot of really lovely buildings here, haven't we? 
I mean, one thing that I've been blessed with to walk around London is how beautiful some of these amazing structures are that somebody sat down on a drawing board and said, if God were to live in a house, what would that look like if he lived in your neighborhood? How would that look different? So that when you walked by, you looked and you went, wow, whoever lives there must be awesome. And you've probably done that before. Walked by a place and it all depends on what your standard of values are. But, you know, some of us, you might walk by and you see the Audi convertible in the parking, you know, in the driveway. You see really expensive things, you know, the sort of 98-foot, you know, flat-screen plasma sticking out of a wall somewhere or whatever. And maybe for some, that would be like, wow, whoever lives there must be awesome. And there are others that it's, you know, you've just, everything's hemp and, you know, it's like natural and there's like animals being, you know, restored back to their natural health or whatever. And you think whoever lives there must be awesome. For me, it's always something quirky, you know, it's like the, the, the house just looks funky and weird and somebody's super creative and they've done something with light bulbs or whatever. And you just, wow, whoever lives there must be awesome. And the, and the whole idea of it is there's certain things that sort of stand out to each of us that we look at and we walk by and we go, okay, well, that person's obviously not your normal neighbor. Some of them were worn by and some, you know, we can kind of just look at it and go, oh, I'm kind of drawn by that. And the sad part, as you're probably aware, is that a lot of these structures that were built so many years ago, hundreds of years ago, many of them, well, now, of course, they've become pubs and flats, social clubs, theater groups. And it used to really bother me. I mean, because understand, in America, we don't have a lot of those. I mean, a lot of, I mean, most of these buildings we're walking by are older than America. So, you know, you kind of get this idea. And, and somewhere I just remember going, God, here we are. We're kind of looking for a building. Wouldn't it be nice to have something? And, and I'm watching them become these things. And, and I remember the Lord just speaking to me saying, Tony, you've got to recognize these things have been these things longer than they've become them officially. In other words, some of these places were already pubs before they became pubs. They were called a church, but people were just getting wasted there anyways. Some of them, you know, before they were flats, were just places where everyone went to sleep. Some of them were places that were social clubs, where everyone went and kind of met people, and, you know, we were kind of hip and whatever. And then in the end of it all, they made friends and they left. Some of them, they were theaters. You know, you could come and you could have the most amazing show you've ever seen. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool? You watch it and it's lasers and it's fog machines and, you know, you're and you're jumping around and high-fiving. Woo! And by the time you're done, you've worked up a sweat and, man, you got it. You, you put your praise on and you walk out of that place. And the whole problem, the, the whole, and understand, in and of itself, that kind of stuff's cool, but it, in and of itself isn't the point. The point is, without God being the center of it, it's still just a building. And because of that, it really doesn't become church until he's the center of it. And you can do all of those things, and God could be completely gone from the room, and you wouldn't even know it. Now, in this particular situation, Solomon has built the building, and now he's brought in the ark, and God has made clear he's there. As he has done traditionally with the tabernacle, he's filled the place with just, the whole place is just filled like a cloud, and now the priests can't even do their job. And everyone's just kind of silent. And as they're silent in this situation, Solomon as a king stands up, and he begins to speak. And he starts by speaking to God and going, in the simplest sense, wow, God, Wow. And that's such a great place to start because we're so mild-mannered here. Well, I, I'm using we, although 
you can kick me out of that club. That club. But you know, we can, we get to that place where everything's like, oh yeah, that was that was really spectacular. That was spectacular. But you know, there's where's that part of us that just goes, wow. And Solomon's brought back to that place where he's just in awe of God, and his eyes are huge, and and you you see someone that you just go, God, I, I'm so small, and that's okay. And God, these are the promises you made, and you fulfilled them. I mean, my dad wanted to build you this building. And you're like, no, that guy killed people, and, you know, that was his kind of thing, and I don't want this to be built on the blood of other human beings like that. So I'm going to have your son do it. And Solomon's like, and I'm the son, and it got built, and there it is. And he's like, God, wow, but this can't really contain you. I mean, this building is, I mean, the heaven of heavens can't contain you. And if the heaven of heavens can't contain you, how much, I mean, how crazy is the concept that you could fit in this little box? Now, he's not talking about a doctrinal position where it's like, well, you know, God, and according to scripture says this, but that's putting him in a box. No, that's putting him in a book he wrote that's his autobiography. And it's fair. But the idea of fitting God into a box and saying, oh, God will be here, but he's not somewhere else, that's a crazy thought. And Solomon is in this state of wonder, and he comes up with this beautiful line that resonates with my heart so much. But I have to say this, beloved. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his gift, his sacrifice on the cross for your sins, his death to pay for your guilt and shame, his burial to bury that person you were and his resurrection to give you a new life where he is now the architect of your reinvention. The scriptures make clear you are now the temple of the living God. And the way you behave and the way that you live should make people walk by and go, whoa, whoever lives there must be awesome. And the natural tendency would be like, well, yeah, that's me. And of course, obviously that's not the case because we weren't awesome like that before he moved in. We just thought we were. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you know you're the temple of the God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Don't you know that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? We're, whom you have from God, you're not your own. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, he says, What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You're the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell among them, walk among them, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. He's like, you realize we are the thing that walks among people that people are supposed to go, who's in there and how do I know him? And Solomon, in his wisest moment, in this moment of fantastic awe and amazement, begins to build on this with, in the simplest sense, with seven situations that pertain directly to this temple. He says, though the heaven of heavens can't contain you because you are infinite. He says this in verse 28 yet, and look at it with me, verse 28. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord, my God, and listen to the crying and the prayer in which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place in which you said my name shall be there that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place and that you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And here's this line, and I just love it. 
Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He's going, no, hear me on this. It isn't like all of you God is going to fit into this box. It's not like a point oh 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 one percent of this is going to fit in this box. But could you make this a depository of your heart? Can you make this a depot of your forgiveness? So that if people know that they can turn there and find your heart, not just your mind, not just your law, but your heart that wants to forgive people. And he lays out seven circumstances, one in 31 to 32, the second in 33, 34, then 35 and 36, then the fourth, 37 to 40, 41 to 43, 44 and 45, and finally 46 to 53. There are all these seven situations that in each of these situations, if they turn towards this temple and your heart's really there, would you really respond, please? Interesting of them, what you'll find is five of the seven start with the idea that someone has sinned, which means that five of these, in one way or another, will demand repentance but what God will do as a result of it. Then the rest of the chapter, 54 to 66, will be Solomon blessing the people with his finishing touches. Let's look at these. Now I remind you, if you and I are the temple of the living God, how do I issue this? If this is the place where, in other words, okay, so initially Solomon looks and he goes, man, when they look at this place, they shouldn't just see your glory. They shouldn't just see your awesomeness. What they should see is your hearts. They should look and go, this is the kind of person God is. And I'm convinced the reason why a lot of people aren't interested in Jesus is because they've seen people who call themselves Christians who don't look anything like them. Now, I'm not talking about the beard and the robe because that would be rough on most girls. But I'm talking about the behavior, the attitude. Now, look at There's two aspects to it because it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. On one side of it, there are those that are like super gushy, put the lamb on your shoulders and I'm all cool. I'm, hey, brothers, let's hug. And there's that guy, but he doesn't stand for truth. And then there's the person on the other side that wants to stand for truth but would rather throw you in the ditch. And he goes, somewhere down the line, neither compromise, and that's my Jesus. So look at it with me. First one. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes to take an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven, which again he will say eight times in this chapter, and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, And justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now, in the first case, you've got two guys and you've got a civil suit. One guy's burned his neighbor and then he's like, no, I didn't, you know. And, you know, and, you know, then, of course, what's going to happen is you're going to kind of go somewhere and a judge has to listen to him. You know, it's like one of those guys that's usually from like the East Coast. He's like, what did you do? You know, and they're like, no, I did this. He's like, no, I didn't do that. And he's like, "Okay, show me the evidence. You know, and then he's like, sit down and shut up, you know, and, you know, and then they argue and yell at each other. And what he's saying is clearly somebody did something wrong. And he goes, we can't seem to find out the truth in the matter He goes, could this actually happen if they came to the temple? Could revelation come of real truth in this matter, real righteousness? And you realize, what if we were that? And you know that because some people come to you with advice. And sometimes if you just listen, you don't even have to be a Christian. You listen to the way they talk. The answer is in what they say. 
we kind of joked about that earlier. You know, it's like, you know, I'm hanging out with this guy, but he beats me all the time and we get drunk and we keep falling and we're running from the police. What should I do? And is there a part of you that, ever, I mean, has anyone ever come to you like that? Because I get that a lot. Now, praise God, for, not from any of you, but it's, you know, and then there's a part of you that thinks, do you really have to ask me? And you're like, God, give me wisdom to not just lay out the answer, but say it in a way that makes sense. Do you like getting beat? Do you like running from the law? Do you, do you like this life? No, I want to get out of this life. Okay, well, what's it going to take for you to get out of this life? And you know they know the answer, but they don't want to say it. Get out. Well, I just want him to change. Well, I do too. How's that been working? I've been trying to change him for five years. Huh. How about you get safe first? And what's amazing is Solomon starts this with, hey, people burn each other. And I remind you, this was the people of God. And people of God, and I, can I give you a newsflash? People of God are still people. It's painful to realize that, isn't it? Which means we're faulty, selfish, nasty, stinky jerks, saved by grace. Before I came to Christ, I was a nasty person. Horrible. And when I came to Jesus, I was a horrible person saved by grace. He's made me a new creation. Praise God that he's made me a new creation. But I could still try to adopt those old things, which would be really bad for all of us. And he goes, looking in our first situation, let this be a place of revelation, of truth. Paul, by the way, when he spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, said, I really want to come. This is a loose paraphrase. I really want to come, but if I am delayed, I'm writing to you so that you may know how you would conduct yourself at the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and ground of the truth. This should not be a place where we compromise. This is a place where we should get the truth. And even if it makes us get a nosebleed, even if it offends us, I would rather be offended with the truth than be massaged into hell any day. Second situation, verse 33. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have what? What is the word there? Sinned. Oh, there it goes again. Sinned against you. And when they turn back to you, stop. Did you get that? In the first situation, God's like, you know, Solomon's like, look at, prove who's wrong in this situation. Get the truth out. In the second situation, we're asking for restoration here. And as we're asking for restoration, there is no restoration without repentance. He's going, look at the situation. Israel's defeated before an enemy because they've sinned. The victory was there, but when they turn their back on their bodyguard, they're going to get worked. So will we. And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, well, then here in heaven... And forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land in which you gave to their fathers. Not only is it to be a place of revelation, it is a place of restoration. It is a place where people could be restored. But for them to be restored, what will be necessary? Repentance. 
But understand the state they come to you in. They come in a state of being defeated. Do you see that? And they come not only in a state of being defeated, but they come in a state of being, if you think about it like this, they come in a state from being removed. They were in their land. They turned their back on God and they got, they found themselves in a battle that they could not win. And as they found themselves in a battle they couldn't win, they got themselves in a place where they wound up getting not only defeated, but deported to another place. They got dragged away by the enemy and they're like, and and you hear people. Now that may not, I mean, as literal as it is in front of us here, that's not normally the way it shows up to us, is it? The way it normally shows up to us is usually somebody that's caught in an addiction, somebody that's caused in a situation that so overwhelms them and they're so defeated at this point and they're depressed and they're anxious, and they're overwhelmed, and they just want out. And they say to you something like, I never thought I would be in this place ever, because this is not my place. This is not where I belong. And that's exactly what Solomon's saying, isn't it? He's saying, when you turn your back on the Lord, and I remind you, this was somebody that to turn your back on the Lord means you didn't start that way. So this is somebody, in our case, it would be someone that's a Christian, Somebody was like, I was walking with the Lord and things were good. And then I saw this, you know, this thing that said, oh, well, I know, even though I knew this was wrong. YouTube said it was okay. Because yeah, after all, God's going to bend. Because, oh, well, it's YouTube. Never mind. Really? You know, and it's like, well, you know, it, you know, and God's like, you could read my Bible and you can see the truth. Or you can torture all the evidence to make it say whatever you want by some nut that has no accountability on a little screen somewhere. And go and somehow put those on the same level with each other. And he looks and, he, and God and Solomon here is saying, when they come and they're repentant, then they're like, you know what? This all started because I turned my back on God. I am so defeated. I am so miserable. He doesn't just say here in heaven and bring them back. He says here in heaven, forgive them. And then bring them back. Because understand, if you carry all that gunk you took with you back in, you'll never have the victory back where you started. It's like, by the way, the word for forgive, here's an easy word to remember. The word in Hebrew for forgive is the word nasa. Try that, nasa. We might even spell in our language N-A-S-A, and it literally means to lift off. Nassau, lift off. Did you get it? That's what it means. When we read forgive, it doesn't just mean forget about it. It means that God took it and he lifted it off of you. And according to scripture, cast it as far as east is from the west. He's like, God, I need you to do more than me than just bring me back. I need you to bring me to, I need you to bring me back different than the way I left. Now, can I be that kind of person? Can someone see that in me when they encounter me? We don't bend on the truth. We're like, if you are willing to repent and walk back, turn away from this and call out to the living God, he's willing to do this. And that's what we're going to find. It says in Galatians 6.1, if a brethren is overtaken in any trespass, you are a spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted in a spirit of gentleness. You know, a firefighter, probably three quarters of the firefighters, oh, you might want to get that. 
while we're broadcasting live. Uh, here's the good news. It's not distract. No, never mind. Um, Well, the f- three quarters of the firefighters back in California that were in our area all came to our church. And it was amazing to watch them speak about the way that they handled fires and the way that they handled people caught in them. And I realized that even a lot of our friends were police officers, how they were very similar and how firm they had to be to a perpetrator, but then how gentle they had to be at a person that had been offended or had been suffered, the victim. And the reason why is because if you turn that same intensity on that individual, they'll never receive your help. And he says, when a person is overcome, they're drowning in their trespass. Save them, but save them gently, but save them nonetheless. So it's a place of revelation and a place of restoration, pending repentance. Number three, verse 35. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, Because, why? They've done what? Got that, huh? Against you? When they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Now, does it actually say here in verses 35 and 36 that God afflicted them? You tell me, is that what it says? It's what it says, isn't it? You know, there are some that would teach God would never do that. Why? What was the, what was the product of God afflicting them? They turned from their sin. They confess God's name. They pray towards this place. In other words, their life got so miserable, they actually wound up turning back to God. People are like, God would never give me something bad. In this case, afflicting them is a good thing because what it did is it turned them back to God. And everything in God's heart is about you being with him, is about you having a relationship with him. And if anything that God can do will draw you closer, it's a good thing. God would rather cut off both of your legs to keep, and then keep you running into hell. You don't believe that? Ask Jesus when he tells us, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Sounds to me like Jesus is pretty serious about it. In the third case, it's not just a place of revelation and restoration. It's a place of refreshment, a place of comfort. Because it's a place where the places become dry. And why did it become dry? What were the people doing? Sitting. It was that simple, right? And the place dried up. And someone comes and they're like, I just am so spiritually dry. I feel like, man, my prayers are empty. My praise is nonsense. I don't even want to be in the word. Fellowship's a a duty instead of a joy. Everything's so dry. You realize sometimes God sends that dryness. Because understand, Jesus says, you're the, Jesus is the vine, you're the branches. We are the branches. And we'll never bear fruit on our own. But if we detach ourselves from Jesus, we will dry up and die. And he does that because he loves us. And it'll turn us back. And my question to you is, how bad does it have to get before you finally turn to him? For some of us, it had to get really bad, didn't it? I mean, it had to get so bad that we were amazed at how bad it was. 
Some of us, we were at the edge of suicide, or some of us, we were at the edge of killing someone else. Some of us, we were just at the place where our life was like, I don't know if I could imagine it getting worse. God's like, have you had enough? And you're like, God, you know what's amazing? We could do drugs and get get caught in the middle of it all and be addicted. Then run around and be sexually licentious and then think we've got a disease or maybe even have one and be pregnant if you're a girl. And, and all of that, and, you know, because we're like, God, I don't want, I don't like your laws, man. So I tell you what, I'm going to do drugs and I'm going to, you know, now I've got hep C because of it. And God, you know what, I, oh, you know, like anyone's going to ever listen to you about, you know, abstaining from all of that. I'm going to go and have sex with whoever I want. And then you've got an, a sexually transmitted disease and you're pregnant. And now you're sitting there and you're pregnant. You've got HIV. You've got, you know, hep C. You know, you're completely miserable. And then you look at God and go, God, why did you do this to me? How does that work? Have anyone ever done that? Enter to you. Where they've done it in front of you. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. You jumped in front of the bus and you blame the person who made the traffic laws. How does that work? And he goes, so here you are and you're dry and you're like, I'm just, man, everything's like sand in my life. He goes, but if they are really willing to turn from their sin, can I just say this in love? God wants you miserable in your sin. He wants you miserable without him. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. And he wouldn't want you to think that the counterfeit's the real deal. Man, what a great lover you have. Verse 37. So it's a place of revelation, restoration, and refreshment. Verse 37. When there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, or mildew. Do you know what blight is? I don't even have to know what it is. Just the word alone just makes it sound pretty awful, doesn't it? You have the blight. Bad enough for me. Pestilence. And obviously, the whole land is just sucked off. It's just terrible. Locusts, grasshoppers, when an enemy besieges them, or the land or their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, in the simplest sense, it's just ceased being fruitful. Have you noticed that? When famine comes in the land, you know why there's famine, right? One thing will always be consistent in every famine. Do you know what that is? Yeah, actually, we can go beyond that. A lack of food. There will always be a lack of food in a famine. Most of the time because of drought, you're right. But sometimes it could be because of pestilence or blight or mildew. Or in our case, snails. I've never thought of them as a dangerous thing until I had a garden here of my own. Locusts or grasshoppers. The only good thing about locusts is they may eat your stuff, but then you can eat them. Uh, anyways, uh, and when an enemy besieges them, these are all reasons for having no food. It could have been a drought, but it could also be that all your plants got sick and died. Or there could be that the locusts or grasshoppers came and ate it all. Or when it all came, like in Gideon's case, before uh, Gideon actually was raised up, Midian, is you remember Midian versus Gideon? Uh, Midian came in, and after they harvested everything, Midian just came in and said, thanks, guys, and they just stole all their stuff. He says, hey, when that happens... And it says in the cities or the plagues, wherever their sickness is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, by all of your people, Israel, when each one knows, and I love this term, the plague of his own heart. You know what the plague of his own heart's going to be? 
consistently with every other thing he stated. It's going to be sin. And spreads out his hands towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give everyone who according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men and that they may fear you all the days in the land in which they which you give to our fathers, the days that they live in the land you give to our fathers. Now, it's a place of revelation it's a place of restoration. It's a place of refreshment, but it's a place of replenishment. He's like, man, when life just gets to this place, it's a place of futility. Without God, what we have is people beating up each other and abusing each other, and everyone's thinking that nobody, that you know, I'm, I'm not wrong. And it's a place where it's, you know, it's like you're completely dried out. It's a place where you're completely just starving and everything's futile. Have you ever had those seasons where it feels like everything you do, you're working so hard at and you're getting nowhere for it? You know, you're defeated and you're exhausted. And the Lord says, just turn to me. In Joel chapter 2, God promised and he spoke about all of these different locusts, each which came in their own time. And as they each come in their own time, he says, at the end of it, I'll I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts. I don't know what the other ones do. This one chews. And, you know, maybe it's like he's got like chewing tobacco. He's like, you know, hey, shut I'm the chewing locust. And the great army which I've sent among you. Now, that's actually four different kinds of locusts. So one locust comes, eats, and you're like, well, at least it'll grow back. Then comes the second one. By the time you get to the chawing locust, there's nothing left. Now, I've got to tell you a quick story. Follow me in this. We're in Central America. This is like the area of Belize. I don't know if any of you have ever been near there or whatever. Um, everyone there says, yeah, like, Yaman, you know. You know? And the, my favorite thing is they always say, right now, man, right now. And right now meant any time but right now. You're like, hey, you're going to do that? Yeah, right now, man. And why are we still staring at each other? I mean, that's, you know, and it was like, and it's like, and, it, and I would read the newspaper and it would be like, Lola, catch a tatif. And it was like, like, that was the way it was written. It was amazing. But in this, we stayed in this compound and all kinds of cool things. I mean, I was with this, one of the two, I had my American football team. Uh, it was also my basketball team that I coached. They were with me. I was, I was teaching at a secondary school, and it was a senior trip. The oldest students, they're 17, 18 years old, and I'm taking them on this mission trip. And, I mean, and two of these guys, it's like they're like rugged. They're like Esau, you know. And, I mean, one of them, his father actually owned a, a gun company, like hunting guns. They were like, you know, the really expensive ones. I don't know a gun from another. I know they shoot, and they're bad if they hit you. Well, <clears throat> And you get the idea these were like outdoorsmen. And we went like caught a six and a half foot iguana and we ate it. It was, you know, it was like, yeah, we're men, huh? you know. And, uh, but one of the things I'll just, and it was like, you know, there were probably eight of us guys and there were, I don't know, five gals that were with us. And of course, separate tents. And in the middle of the night, you know, here we are kind of talking about things, praying away scorpions and, you know, that kind of thing. But in manly ways, like, God, well, if it's going to be a scorpion, let me kill it, you know, which we're really praying inside. God, please don't let it even come near me, you know. And all of a sudden, there is this sound like screeching eels. I mean, it just sounds, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like if you gave every seagull in London Red Bull and then just threw them at each other. You know what they're, they're like? Ah, 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 ah. That kind of sound. 
And we all kind of wake up and we're like, what in the world is going on? And so we step out of our tent and we look at the girls and they're in a slap fight, every one of them. I mean, and we're not talking like, ha, 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 so, oh, ha, ha. They're like, kapush, 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 kapush. I mean, they are just smacking each other silly. And at first, of course, we're guys, we do what most guys do at a moment like that. We laugh because it's the strangest thing we'd seen all, you know. We don't even know when the world's going. And then we look at their tent and they're like, their tent's a different color. How in the world is this? Well, apparently, there are these ants, and they come literally by the billions, and they cover a surface area on the ground of roughly, to give you an idea, a half of a mile by a half a mile, and it is completely black, and they then they're very hungry, and uh, and so. And basically all they do is they move like a black sheet and everything they move towards, they just eat and nibble on their way. If it's food, they eat it. And if not, they bite it anyways and keep going. Now, why didn't they go in our tent? Well, probably first of all, if I could be very candid, because guys fart and that any, any righteous ant would never go near that. But to be honest, the perfect reason was because they told us not to put any food in our tent and we actually didn't put any food in our tent. The girls, on the other hand, went, okay, 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 okay. Where are you putting the candy bars? And so they had brought backpacks full of candy bars that, you know, I'm like, I could only think they were going to give them to the children. But nonetheless, and the ants were like, da, 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 da. Ooh, I smell Mars bars. And they just went, and they came over. So poor, this poor gal, Rachel's up on the bunk, and the gal underneath her is Christina. And she's like, Christina, stop that. Christina, stop that. She's like, Christina, stop that. She thinks she's got like a feather or a twig trying to like poke her in the head because she was covering her. And so she throws off her blanket, and then they were like, oh, well, there's more to nibble on. And then they just go right at Rachel. And Rachel starts to realize, well, nobody at this point has grabbed any torch to see what it is. And then, of course, they do. And that's when, of course, the hilarity really ensued. So they look at each other, and they are pitch black. They're, the ants have just decided if there's a place to go sniff out, they're, yeah, they're sniffing it out, and they're nibbling. And they went, and, and they're like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And the guy that was there that was actually from the area said, stand still. Now, could you imagine telling a group of girls that just woke up in the middle of the because they're getting eaten by ants to stand still? Yeah, it went that, that well. Yeah, it did. But ultimately, he says, this is what you have to do. You have to wait till they leave. And they're like, well, well can we just go over by the boys? And of course, the boys are like, no, you don't need to come over here. You'll steer them over here, you know. But in the end of it all, you watch it. and then, But once they leave, the most profound thing happened all the grass was gone. Like all, it was like amazing. Anything that could be nibbled, leaves, anything, they were just gone. Every tree was just twigs. And of course, the girls looked awesome. And, you know, needless to say, every candy bar was gone. Everything else. That was, and, and, and I just look at that and I realize sometimes in life that just happens. And what's amazing is the guy that um, that we were with that was from the area, he's like, he was so casual about it. He's like, yeah, 
They're not going to kill you. They will make you uncomfortable. Yeah, one in your shorts will make you uncomfortable. A hundred in your shorts, uncomfortable is an understatement. But just the same, and he's like, and but when they're gone, they're gone. And he goes, this is just something that happens with life here. Now, what was amazing is two of those girls were like, I think I'm called to move down here. You might guess. Neither of them felt called to go down there after that. And it was just, and sometimes in life, you're just in a situation, but disobedience puts you in the path of this. And you turn from God and you're like, I'll do it myself. Sometimes it's like, God, I know you think this isn't right, so I'm just going to do it anyways. This is what I feel like doing. Deal with it, God. And God's like, okay, but you're putting yourself in the path of this. And then you throw yourself in the path of it and then you yell at God because of it. And then you realize in the end of it all, you're so helpless. The only one you can cry out to is the one you've been yelling at. And then you finally go, God, I I suck. I'm so stupid. What in the world am I doing? And he goes, if they realize the plague in their own heart and they cry out to you. Now, maybe you're in that situation. Maybe that's you tonight. You feel like you're so exhausted. You're trying so hard. But it just seems like it just keeps going away. Now, look at Sometimes the Lord just does it to strengthen our hands. Sometimes he does it to strengthen our faith. He's like, don't worry, there will be fruit in due time. But sometimes he does it because we've been running from him. And this is the misery that it will take to bring us back. But it does when we turn to him. And can I be a person that's a place of revelation truth? Not compromise. Let's face it, the whole world's full of compromise. Nobody even knows what the truth is anymore because everyone's like, it's whatever you think it is. And I'm like, is that the truth? It's a place of restoration where someone could come and say, I've been so stupid. I'm like, well, God still forgives. Are you repentant? Let's go. And repentance starts with going, you know, admitting that wrong is wrong. And then a place of refreshment. And then a place of replenishment. God really wants to replenish you. Verse 41. Things change now. It's our first one that doesn't address sin. He says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this temple, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I've built is called by your name. It's not just a place of revelation and restoration and refreshment and replenishment. It's a place of reception, a place that welcomes. But please hear me on this. It is a place that welcomes the foreigner to become part of a family. But they don't take their old ways in. You're probably aware of this. In the world, every country has one of two basic cultures. One is it's a very pronounced culture, and in the other case, it's a very unpronounced culture. Certain places you go, you kind of know, okay, China has got a very pronounced Chinese culture to it. By the way, you're probably aware of the fact if you go to China and you ask for Chinese food, just ask for food. It's Chinese. That's the way that works. I mean, you kind of know that. Certain places in India, very pronounced culture. Greece is a place where a lot of it's very, very pronounced. 
This is who we are. This is our culture. We are not that culture here. We are an unpronounced culture. You know, do you know what the official food of London is? Curry. Not bang and mash or something with an end, bubble and squeak. That was always my, like, bubble and squeak. That does not like sound like something you should be eating. Uh, and, you know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, I thought there should be so many things. Even a meat pie would make at least more sense. They're like, no, it's curry. And I'm like, wow. And then I look at our fellowship and I look around and I'm, you know, you ask, so who's like the most just traditionally British guy in our fellowship? I'm still trying to figure that out. And people are like, I'm half British. I'm like, wow, if you win at half? And London is an extremely cosmopolitan place. So what happens is that becomes a, a culture of tolerance. Well, you can be just who you are and I could be who I am. Well, what if your, your particular culture is one where that if you see a girl that shows off her hair, you have a right to, co- to pull her into another room and shave her head and cover her? Or if you have somebody that's wearing shorts that you have a right to kill them. If that's your culture, do you have a right to inflict your culture on someone else? Well, there becomes the danger. And that's why, of course, Europe has gathered together and said, well, can we have some general rules to abide by? And the reason I say that is, is we don't invite a person in so that they can change God. You know, and you think, hey, well, where we come from, we have 330 million gods. Well, we can add this one. There's always room for one more. Well, Jesus isn't like one more. He's actually in replacement of all of them. And that becomes the danger in a place like this. We kind of just make Jesus one of the options or part of an option. And that is not why Jesus died on the cross. I remind you, when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed to the Father and he said, if there be any other way, then don't let me go to the cross. Take this cup from me. Let this cup pass from before me. Do you realize what Jesus is asking the Father? If you could be saved or go to heaven some other way, can I not go to the cross? Now, doesn't that sound like a sane prayer? Which one of you would go, well, you know, if, if I could be an option, if I could just throw myself on the buffet table of, you know, of religion, and I'm like, you know, you could rub this guy's belly, or you could play a drum down Oxford Street, or you could do this. Yeah, those are cool options. Sure, torture me to death. I just want to qualify with the big boys. Really? Because what Jesus said is, if there's another way to do this, I really don't want to go. And what father that promises to love people like his son would allow his son to be tortured to death and ignore that prayer? Who could do that? Hey, for a person who doesn't know Jesus, I don't blame them for playing the buffet game. But for a Christian who really knows Jesus, there's no room for that. And what he says is, a foreigner, when he comes, he comes with the ideas like, how do I, how do I get adopted into this? Not, how do I make you more like me? Because he goes, I want you to know this place is called by your name, Lord. Your name. So it's a place of reception. We welcome, but we welcome. By the way, understand this. I'm seeking to become more like Jesus. How about you? Are you? I mean, I'm just being honest. Are you seeking to become more like Jesus? That's what we should have in common. Now, you guys look like you're all in a coma. I mean, are you? Are you? Do you want to become more like Jesus? I genuinely do. Do you? Okay, cool. Thank you. I mean, you started to make me nervous because y'all kind of like, and I'm like, this is like, these are real people, right? Can I invite anyone into that?
here's the cool thing. I'm not trying to make you me. Oh, you do not want to be me. What I want to do is I want to make us, I, I'm going to go, but follow me as I follow Christ. Let's all do that together. Let's all become like Jesus together. And when we do, we're going to all look at each other and go, isn't it just cool how he's changing us? And there's the exciting part. And if a person, no matter where they come from, look at it, it starts at the cross and then we begin this amazing adventure of following Jesus from that point on. And that's what I want for you and me. Finally, we go to our last one. Guess where we're going to go back to? When they sin against you, there's no one who does not sin. And you become angry with him and you deliver him to the enemy. And you take them captive, or they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Remember the first one was like, or the second one was like, if that's the case, could you bring him back? Well, what if this is something that becomes a consistent problem to where a quick rescue isn't going to bear forth a permanent change? So they actually have to be there a while. Do you hear the difference? Let's face it, sometimes something gets really bad and it kind of slaps you in the face and you're like, whoa, never do that again. And then that's enough. Sometimes you go there and you're like, well, I'll never do that again until tomorrow. And then you're back in it tomorrow and God's like, you know, you may actually need to be here a little while. It's going to have to suck long enough for it to make a lasting memory so you don't really want to go back. Well, that's this situation. So when they come to themselves in the land in which they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land in which, you took them ca- or which those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned, we've done wrong. With committed wickedness. And when they returned you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of the enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land in which you gave to their fathers, the city in which you've chosen and the temple which you have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive the people who have sinned against you and all the transgression in which they've transgressed against you. And listen to the strange thing. He says, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Do you notice he doesn't just say, and bring them back right away? He's like, well, if they have to be there, could you make it as restful as possible in the midst of that? I mean, if they really, if this is where they need to be to learn, would you let their captors have some kind of compassion on them? Because they're your people and your inheritance, which you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your serpent and to the supplication servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them wherever they call to you. For you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you spoke to our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Let's close this up. Last five minutes. And so it was. And so in the end of it all, we're going to find is it should be a place of rest. Even in the roughest of storms, even in the toughest of places, we should be able to issue rest. And sometimes I can't believe God would let you be in that place. Well, what if? The whole purpose behind it is to bring you right with him. Can I be this person? Can you be this person? A a person who really wants people to be right with God, and that's the bottom line in all of this? When Solomon, so it was, when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he rose from the altar, before the altar of the Lord, he was kneeling on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. Well, then he stood and blessed the, the assembly, blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest 
to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of his good promise, of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. And may he not leave us nor forsake us. The very thing Jesus promised, of course, in Matthew 28, 20 and reviewed in Hebrews 13, 5. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and all of his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded to our fathers. And may these words of mine in which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There's no other. My heart's desire in all of this that the, that the whole world would know this is the one that they should turn to. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord your God. He's speaking to the people, I remind you, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is this day. Then the king and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings in which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls. Now I remind you, a peace offering is different than a burn offering. A burn offering, all of it's consumed. A peace offering, you actually burn the parts nobody eats unless they're Scottish. And then the parts that are like steak, we all share together and eat. In other words, what a great peace offering. 20, 22,000 bulls. That is a whole lot of steak. I'm glad. 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Now, if you're a vegan, I don't mean to offend you, but this, pretty, this sounds just awesome to me. I just want you to know. It. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle court that was in front of the house of the Lord, and there he offered burnt offerings. Remember, that's the idea of total sacrifice. Peace means we were once enemies, now we're at peace, and so we're feasting together to celebrate that. Grain offerings, we're celebrating the fruitfulness of the Lord and the fat of the peace offerings. Of course, he's going to offer that, I remind you. Because the bronze altar that was there before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings. He was offering so much, there's clearly not enough room. The grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. It was a place of, it was celebrating total surrender, fruitfulness, and fellowship. At that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him. This, the king actually fed everyone for two weeks. I'm in. And now that I've seen the menu. And all of Israel with him. A great assembly of the entrance from Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And it says, um, that's bigger than London. Uh, Before the Lord, our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for his Israel, his people. Beloved, as we go to prayer, here's the beauty of this. Solomon in his greatest day sees God fill the temple and he goes, well, clearly you're here. So the only thing to do, first of all, is look at you and go, wow. And then to cry out to you and say, well, can this really be a place where people can turn and see your heart, your heart to make them right with you? That's really what this is all about. Whether that's the foreigner or the sinner, whether it's the person who is completely depleted and, and, and just empty or dry and exhausted. Isn't that what Jesus said? Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You can come to me thirsty. But if you believe in me, and this is Jesus speaking, I mean, he goes, out of you will torrent living water. That water I place within you will become its own fountain. You realize Jesus loves us coming to him in that state. But we don't come to that state still somehow thinking we have the right to call ourselves the Lord in this situation. 
He goes, man, Jesus just wants you right with him. Now, I don't know where you're at today, but if there is anything that's causing any of this, can I be, if you will, the, the depository of God's heart? Can I be the one that will say, God wants you right with him. And until you run from him, you're just never going to be happy. You can lie and escape and avoid and elude, but in the end, you just, why not just come out with your hands up and let him love you? And at the end of it all, what becomes as a result of it? This continual celebrant feast where everybody is blessed as a result of it. Well, I want to pray that for us. But I remind you, this all starts at the same place. It doesn't start with us joining a church. We don't have a membership, by the way. It starts with you joining the body of Christ by accepting the gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, accepting that gift on your behalf and giving him permission to reinvent your life. And if you do that, all of this stuff goes away and God starts giving you this amazing thing instead, this place of refreshment and replenishment, of rejuvenation, of great joy and rejoicing and rest. This is what he offers. But we don't do it to get that. We do it to be with him. That stuff's just the dividend. That's the product of it. But that's the choice you can make. And it's not just for the person who's never said yes to Jesus. We as Christians can do the same. We can still go, I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of of a drought. Like that makes any sense at all. And here you are. It's Tuesday night. This is Tuesday night. This isn't even Sunday. You've come in the midweek, if you will, because somehow in it you just knew if we could come today, God was going to meet us. And he has. And now the only thing that's left is your choice. He's already made his. The offer's there. What we're going to find next week is that God's going to respond to this. And his answer is, okay. I mean, it's lengthier than that, but that's his answer. He's like, God, will you please do this? Will you hear from heaven? Will you hear from heaven? Will you forgive? Will you restore? Will you bring them back? Will you just bring life back? And God goes, yeah, cool. Now, granted, he says it in a way cooler way than that, but that's, he says, yes. Now understand, God is willing. The issue is not God. It isn't like God's got his arms crossed. He's like, I don't really know. He's completely into it. So it won't be his fault. The issue is just us whether we'll say yes. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text and these beautiful people and the privilege of being able to be in your word and expect you to do cool things like speak to us. And God, we confess to you, without you, we're none of these things. We're not refreshed. We're not replenished. We're not rejuvenated. But with you, God, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, remind us that we are complete in you. And we just pray, Lord, that we could be so much more than just not empty, not depleted, not exhausted, but that we would become then the the living tabernacle for which you would do more than manifest your glory, but rather, God, as well, where you would herald your heart, where people could see who you really are and what you're like. By the way we behave, we never sacrifice the truth, but rather 
We lay out the truth in love. And as we lay out the truth in love, God, people find repentance. And in finding repentance, they see the need for it. And they turn to you. And not just the unbeliever, but the person who's a Christian who is way compromised and they know it if someone was willing to be honest with them. What's clear is we can't say we love someone and just let them run to their own destruction. So God, make us true temples as you ordained. And in that, if there be any who have yet to say yes to Jesus, listen to this prayer. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be mine now. I take that prayer as my own. And here it is. God, I come to you not in my own merit. I come to you in my own guilt and in my own dishonor. Because as a sinner, as a person who's lived for myself, I'm not perfect. You and I both know that. But you sent Jesus to take all of my guilt and shame and filth upon himself. And he cried out, if there be any other way, then don't let him go. But he went because there isn't. And on the cross, all of my punishment that I deserve for all of the crimes of my heart were inflicted upon your son, Father. And there Jesus died because I should have. He was buried all like Scripture promised. And on the third day, just as Scripture promised, he rose again. And he offers me now a new life where that guilt and shame no longer have to be things that cover me, but can be left behind, lifted off in forgiveness. So I say yes. If that's the offer you offer me, then I say yes, declaring Jesus not only as my ransom and Savior, but also as my Lord to lead me in this new life. So now, Lord, lead me. Father, adopt me as your own, and Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I declare you that now in my life, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our, you've heard our amens. You've heard our yeses. We say yes to you. So Lord, now lead us out of here with great joy, I pray in your name. Amen.